0: We're listening to a podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello and welcome to The Fear of God, Episode 8. We are a podcast exploring Christianity and the horror genre, And having this conversation is myself, Reed Lackey. And myself, Nathan Rouse. (laughs) (laughs) So if you heard us last week, you know that right now it's October and we are doing something a little special, a little different. We are spending this month profiling the work specifically of John Carpenter. Last week, we talked a little bit about uh, sort of the first decade of his filmmaking and spent uh, a good bit more time talking about the Fog in general, so what we're going to do this week is kind of pick up where we left off in his general film biography, and uh, and then we're going to be devoting time talking to a film that I think everyone will agree is an iconic masterpiece, um, especially you, Nathan, right? Especially me, yes. I can't <laughs> wait. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah so uh, let's uh, let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to talk about the '80s, and when it comes to John Carpenter and the '80s, there is so so much to talk about. Virtually every reason we have for still discussing John Carpenter as a filmmaker happened in the '80s, um, with the possible exception of Halloween. You know, well, not possible, with the obvious exception of Halloween. Most of his iconic films happened in the 80s. He made eight films this decade. All of them are good, and at least five of them would probably be considered essential, defining works of his career. And that's not even counting uh, some of the other films that he produced and, uh, and had a part in that, that we're not even going to really talk about. So coming off of Halloween, wildly successful film, he then went on to direct The Fog. Last week we spent a lot of time talking about The Fog, so we'll, we'll move on from that. His follow-up to The Fog was probably one of his most iconic and quintessential films. He made a film called Escape from New York. Now, uh, out of all of his films, so Carpenter is known for horror, and he's known for scary films. Uh, Escape from New York is not a horror film. It's more of an action film. But if somebody were to come to me and be like, okay, I'm only going to watch one John Carpenter film, and I don't necessarily need it to be a scary one. I want the most iconic representation of what John Carpenter does as a director and what he what he does as a filmmaker. Honestly, even though I think Halloween and The Thing are much better movies, I would point them to Escape from New York because Escape from New York has all of John Carpenter's strengths at play. It's got suspense, it's a little campy. It's got the anti hero at its center. It's kind of got an anti establishment vibe. It's low budget. It's got dark humor. It stars Kurt Russell. Uh, I mean, it's got everything. And yet, and yet today we're talking about they live. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, that's a, a great masterpiece of a movie. Um, so, uh, so yeah, but I mean, Escape from New York, if you haven't seen it and you're a fan of, honestly, if you're a fan of action films of the 80s, uh, you've probably already come across it, but if you're a fan of action films of the 80s and haven't seen it, then you should seek it out. Because Escape from New York, it was wildly popular at the time. It was very highly praised critically and made a lot of money. It was a very big success for him, much bigger than The Fog, actually. Um, and Escape from New York uh, definitely established him as sort of a, it was his last independent film for a little bit of time. And then he started doing more mainstream stuff through the 80s, largely because of the success of Escape from New York. So I could go on and on about it, but I won't. I just say that it's an essential John Carpenter film. If you're at all interested in John Carpenter's work beyond what we're talking about, you need to seek out Escape from New York. But the next film that he made um, is one that we're actually going to be talking a lot more in-depth about next week and would largely come to solidify his legacy and haunt his legacy um, because to the follow-up from Escape from New York, it was very successful and he got commissioned by Universal Studios to make a major uh, studio film, which was his first, and he made The Thing. And uh, we'll talk more in depth next week about sort of how The Thing was responded to initially by fans and critics and how it sort of came to define his work in the 80s and, and how it affected him. I will just say that at the time, it was just horribly derided. Fans hated it critics hated it. Uh, audiences, I should say, not fans. Uh, audiences hated it. Critics hated it. They called Carpenter immoral and indecent for even making a movie like The Thing, and that's been reassessed uh, dramatically in the last 10 to 15 years. But at the time, uh, The Thing really sort of halted his career in its tracks in some way, because Universal had a couple of pictures lined up with him, and then after the backlash of the thing, they parted ways with him. In fact, Universal had slated for him to direct Firestarter, uh, which is based on the novel by Stephen King. But uh, they parted ways with John Carpenter after the thing, and ironically, following that, Columbia Pictures also had the rights to a Stephen King property, and they asked John Carpenter to make Christine. And, uh, you know, we're very big fans here of, of Stephen King, here at The Fear of God. Um so this is the place where John Carpenter and Stephen King sort of collide. Uh they are to my understanding they're still friends to this day. But uh Carpenter was not as affectionate towards Christine as he had been to the source material for Firestarter. Um so Christine is actually a, it's a very good movie. Um I think it's great as a horror film of the 80s and if you're a fan of Stephen King adaptations it's it's near the top of of some of his um work you know best works that have been adapted from his novels um but i think the problem is it, it's just a little uninspired and i think that largely has to do with john carpenter's own ambivalence towards the material he even said by his by his admission he he just did it because he needed to work following the thing he needed a job and and he decided to direct christine i mean can you fault the guy you know we all got to work <laughs> we gotta pay the bills. it's true It's true. But if you but I mean, seriously, Christine is worth your time. If uh, if you're interested in the work of Stephen King, if you're interested in the work of John Carpenter, if your name is Christine, if your name is Christine, then why haven't you seen it already? Honestly. Um, But, uh, you know, if there was a list of films that were essential and a list of films that were just for the curious, I would position Christine in the curious list, but I'd probably put it at the top of that list. But anyway, following Christine, he went on to make, uh, the uh, I think, the only other film that you had seen prior to this profile. Um, he made Starman, uh, also for Columbia. And I think here's what's interesting. Uh, as we'll talk about more next week, the, the backlash to The Thing was largely due to another film that audiences may have heard of called E.T. And uh, E.T. had come out two weeks before The Thing. And everybody was loving aliens. Everybody was so enamored with the idea of aliens and affectionate to the possibilities of extraterrestrial life. And then John Carpenter drops this bleak, horrific vision called The Thing down on audiences, and they just hated him for it. And his agent and the studio and a number of people said, and this is baffling to me, um, but they said, you need to atone. You know, we talked last week about uh penance and uh talking about uh making amends, they told him like you need to kind of make amends for the thing. You need to direct something that's entirely different, something that's dramatically out of your out of your normal zone. And uh so he directed Starman, which is just this simple it is science fiction, but it's this simple, straightforward, sort of lovely little fantasy love story, um, that is so atypical from the rest of his work. And you had seen Starman just briefly. I mean, do you like Starman? Do you have a good memory for it? Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, You know, I I don't, I'm not sure that I would be able to tell you the plot beginning to end. What, you know, sort of beat for beat. It's been quite a long time. Um, Like I mentioned last week, it was just one of those that upon discovering that he had done it was surprised because I had seen it before. Didn't know he had any association with it. What little I do remember involves red, stop, green,
0: go, yellow go really fast. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> that was the, that's actually in the trailers and it's one of the few moments that I remembered from it. Yeah. That Doggone it. I thought I was making a good deep cut there. No, no, but but hey, still it's a, it's it's a prob one of the most memorable moments in the movie. I, I I had never seen more than bits and pieces of Starman before I watched it for this gotcha. for this profile. But I thought it was a lovely movie. I mean, I, th- I think it holds up rather well, especially because I hadn't seen it.
1: Yeah, I think the scene, uh, again, not remembering everything, but I mean, the scene when he revives the deer, that's a really lovely... Oh, like, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think lovely is a is a great word to describe the whole film in general. It's interesting because the original script, which uh, I- ironically was presented along with E.T. to Columbia Pictures, and Columbia actually chose Starman and passed on E.T., which is why... Spielberg made it at Universal. But uh, I just think it's interesting to me how E.T. kind of becomes, in the John Carpenter filmography, E.T. is kind of like the uncle everybody wonders why they invited him. (laughs) You know, like, it's it's just fascinating to me. But I, I think Starman's original script had a lot of political undertones and a lot of social commentary. Carpenter, I think, requested that a lot of that be removed. And he downplayed a lot of that, which is interesting because almost every other film, including the one we're talking about today, almost every other one of his films has deep social commentary and is is saturated with sort of political undertones. But again, keep in mind, he's making Starman to kind of get himself back into audiences and critics' good graces. So so that's largely why he made that film and made it the way that he did. But uh, that's not to put Starman down because, as we both said I think it's a lovely and touching little film that I think holds up very, very well. And uh, even though it's a little different from most of Carpenter's other work, I still think it's an, a, a classic science fiction 80s film. And I think it's a highlight for him. So he's kind of back in everybody's good graces now. He's, he's back uh, in the public mainstream eye. And then he makes a film called Big Trouble in Little China. And uh, Big Trouble in Little China, at the time was was again sort of uh, critically sort of dismissed and ignored audiences didn't care very much for it uh but oddly has seen in the last 5 to 10 years a dramatic cult following where it is you know regularly screened uh for anniversary viewings and there's a huge fan base for big trouble in little china and i got to say every single time i watch big trouble in little china it is I I just forget how fun it is. It is so funny, and it's, it's just this great little 80s fantasy action piece. And if you had any doubts about the acting abilities of Kurt Russell, you could look at The Thing, Escape from New York, and Big Trouble in Little China and see how dramatically different each of his characters are in each of those films, he's an outstanding actor, and in Big Trouble in Little China, he is the most sort of borderline obnoxious like hard-boiled truck driver he's, he's kind of a uh, kind of the the second cousin twice removed of John Wayne he's just walking around going well you just listen to what Jack Burton says whenever times like this come around where's my truck and who do you think you are let's have a little conversation here like <laughs> that's kind of this his mode through the through the whole film
1: I love that I love that in 10 minutes you know I'm I'm quoting you know Jeff Bridges Starman. you're riffing on Kurt Russell's Jack Burton. That's impressive. We're, we are an impressive pair Reed, to be able to provide these <laughs> uh, pitch perfect impressions.
0: It's, it's true. And they are perfect. I mean, I, for a second, uh, I thought uh, Jeff had joined the podcast. And I'm sure you felt the same about, uh, about Kurt Russell. Yeah. But uh, for the sake of time, I won't spend a ton more on, on that. I'll just say Big Trouble in Little China is, is, is a lot of fun. And and I think it's a it, it's a really good sort of fantasy action film from the '80s, although it wasn't you know it wasn't very well received at the time. So uh, Carpenter went back to horror with his next film, kind of the thematic follow-up to some of the themes he explored in The Thing. He made a film called Prince of Darkness, and Prince of Darkness has an interesting premise. Basically, the premise is that there's this supernatural anomaly that's taken place. In, uh, uh, in this one specific location, and a group of scientists are coming to investigate this, this sort of supernatural paranormal phenomena. Uh, one of the things that I actually don't like very much about Prince of Darkness is that it does not fully capitalize on the possibilities of that theme. I mean, you have scientists exploring supernatural and paranormal phenomena. That was so fascinating to me. But the film... Very quickly descends into straightforward horror territory. And as a horror film, I think it's great. As a horror film, I think it's quite good. It's, it's gruesome. It's grisly. It's scary. Um, it's got some great visuals and it's definitely, you know, sort of on the nastier end, particularly compared to like the fog. It, it's, it's definitely a great horror film. It, it gets dinged a little bit for me simply because it does not really Uh, as I said, capitalize on the, the possibilities in its premise of science and supernatural colliding in some in-depth conversation. It just sort of goes for some straightforward horror. But if you're a horror fan, as we are, uh, then, uh, then you, you should definitely check it out. So, uh, despite, you know, the ups and downs in this particular decade for John Carpenter, the eighties, you know, it, it just remains the focal point of of his legacy, uh, films that were initially sort of ignored or or disdained, like The Thing and Big Trouble in Little China, have now become favorites in their genre. And even some of the lesser films we talked about, like Prince of Darkness and Christine, have even become cult classics. Um, Starman and Escape from New York were popular at the time and remain popular. Um, so that I mean, the, there's a lot going on from John Carpenter in in the '80s, but. I didn't choose to talk specifically about any of those films. I chose for this profile to talk about one of the greatest films ever made. I choose to talk about the film he made in 1988, which wrapped up his work in the 80s. I'm talking about the iconic, immortal, immensely memorable uh, masterpiece on the level with Citizen Kane and The Godfather. Oh, no. Is... The Rowdy Roddy Piper starring They Live. Nathan. I was going to ask you if you've got your bubblegum, man. <laughs> you know? Unfortunately, I don't have a dollar in my bank account, and I'm all out of bubble gum. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so I guess we'll just podcast.
0: <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I think, I think this is also, correct me if I'm wrong, one of his most Christian movies, in keeping with our intersection theme here, that it was loosely inspired by the, um, you know, I think, I think the initial title was because they live
0: um <laughs> oh, wow wow that is a that is a deep cut for for christian audiences that is a I'm, we're not even going to explain it just yep, if you yep, get the reference yep, you get it yep. there there it is and it's actually kind of oh, it's funny if you follow through with it um
1: <laughs> yeah man they live uh you loved this movie right you thought this was great do you want do you want me to just react Do you want me to just talk I do. Yeah, please, please. Yeah, you know, uh, we established last week, I had only seen Halloween of Carpenter's oeuvre and um, knew nothing about They Live, which actually doesn't give you a whole lot of uh, indications by title alone. Right. And and so I, I just knew nothing going into it. And honestly, and as I sort of established, as we have established over time, I don't mean to give definitive statements, just personal reactions to this. So... I almost think I hurt myself by not knowing anything about it Um, Mm. because I'm coming off the fog, which is, as we established before, this kind of quaint kind of campfire, almost storybook feel to it, though, with, of course, some some uh, scary edges to the story. You know, Carpenter is, of course, associated with kind of horror stuff. So I'm going into They Live thinking I'm getting some sort of is this going to be kind of a a zombie tale? You know, I, I had not looked at casting or anything. And even I think the day I went to watch it happened to watch a trailer and the trailer, as iTunes occasionally does, is literally just a scene. I mean, it's just a snippet. And it's the scene of uh, Riley Piper. And um, oh, gosh, his name's eluding me now. Um, Keith David. But, yes, yes. Uh, Keith David. It's the scene when they're just walking down the street and he's questioning why you're following me. So even that doesn't oh. indicate tone. Right. right yeah. You yeah. know, So though it was funny. I had not looked at casting before watching the trailer, and I was like, "Gosh, I recognize that guy." Thinking Rowdy <laughs> Roddy Piper. Wow. Okay. What am I in for here? And I, I was oh, yeah. I was I was unprepared for what I was in for. Um, so so yeah, I think if I were to watch They Live again, I might have a different reaction. Or so so yes, to to put a, a button on that, I did not have a very favorable reaction to They Live. Part of that was expectation. You know, I was expecting a certain tone. I got something. <laughs> the complete opposite of what I was expecting. So that was a little jarring. You know, it's it's just extremely dated. Roddy Piper is a horrible actor. You shut your mouth. <laughs> just, <laughs> sure. Um, you know, so I, I think I texted you the night I watched it that I appreciate what they were going for. And, and clearly, yeah, yeah. there was a lot rooted in the atmosphere of that movie that even informed some pop culture today that I didn't realize the connection. So so I appreciate what they were going for. It's just sort of riddled with ridiculousness in a way that if I were I think if I were in college and just chilling and you and I back at Gardner Web just hanging out, like, hey let's watch this movie, I'd have been I don't know, I think I would have received it a lot differently than I might have uh gearing up for this. So I'm not defending my position, simply stating this was the feeling I had watching They Live. And in fact, <laughs> I think I texted you during the fight scene and I was like, This is ridiculous. <laughs> like, I can't like and it's funny because I can be an appreciator of absurd humor if I kinda know that's what I'm getting into, which again I'm not defending. I'm simply saying that's my perspective on it. And so I just didn't know that's what I was getting. Right. And then right. I'm already a little jarred by the tone. And then you get to this fight scene that goes on forever. And I was like, What five and a half minutes I cannot what? Yeah. This is this is so dumb. Um, you know, and then Keith David kicks Piper in the nuts three times, and it's like, what am I watching? So, <laughs> so yeah, all that said, um, it was, it, it, it just didn't strike the right chord for me. Although I, it was fun. I don't know that I've ever seen her in anything before, and I don't know if you picked up on this, but one of the first scenes in the film is, uh, Roddy Piper trying to get a job at this, I don't know what it is, you know, at the train yard or construction something. site. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. The, the woman who is talking to him, do you recognize her?
0: Uh actually no, that I'm, that I'm she trying is, to recall now. I
1: don't I'm gonna make a deep cut here. She is the old lady with the severed head in Beetlejuice um, who is smoking what? out of her. Oh neck. wow. Now, let me say that. I recognized her as such. I actually am, am I'm gonna be real embarrassed if we're gonna look into IMDB and it's actually not the same person, but I'm about ninety nine percent positive it is. So that was a fun little uh oh, that's cool. A fun little nugget. And then we got Because They Live. And then you know just 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 <laughs> I mean just it was it was just funny you know Roddy Piper trying on the sunglasses for the first time and having that glorious experience of revealing I mean his his acting is so beautiful in those moments I mean just he's so he's so taken aback by what he's seeing through these lenses so so yeah that was my general reaction to They live Um, it, you know, some, some things, one, it, well, I did think it was strangely topical. That's hitting on some themes. We can kind of come back to that, but (laughs) it felt like the Lego movie, if you've seen the Lego movie, but if it were made (laughs) in
0: 1988
1: (laughs) with Roddy Piper, but just some things that struck me as so funny, like there's the scene when they find the, um, or when they're invited to the camp, you know, the, the, the bunker. Right, right. Mm-hmm. As someone who wears contact lenses, the level of verisimilitude with those two guys trying to put contacts in was like so unbelievable. <laughs> it's <was> ridiculous. <laughs> so they put these contact, these fake contacts in. But then there's the, so there's this weird juxtaposition, which me having never seen this movie, that happens in that movie that I made note of at least, which is. They're going for a very specific or Carpenter's going for a very specific kind of theme and and sort of talking about this issue of nonconformity and and mass mind and and media manipulation, all that sort of stuff. But it's also incredibly violent, too. But there's this great moment when they're in the bunker and they see this just like smorgasbord of artillery and armory and stuff. And they are read. Yeah. They are chunking grenades in that backpack like it's a loaf of bread. Like they're just going to grandma's house. I'm like, you guys, you've got to be a little more careful with those grenades. You know? It was just, it was just so funny. Like oh. you can tell these are plastic grenades that they are throwing in this backpack. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that's my general response. Oh
0: man, well I do think it's interesting. I, I think it's interesting that in a film that you know that has uh, sort of alien beings posing as humans. Uh, one of the things you comment on as unbelievable is the way they put in their contact lenses. (laughs) Well,
1: that's because, come on, I've never seen an alien, so I don't know that it actually looks like that or not. But I have worn contacts and do to this day. And know if you went from sunglasses to contacts, you're going to have a harder time than they did in that movie. That's a good point. That said, I I will say this. I will compliment this. I mean, I like the the general aesthetic of it, too. I mean, like, you know, it was, again, if I didn't, as I, as was the case, if I didn't know what I was getting into, it was a little jarring. But, you know, the black and white, even the sort of look of the alien beings, whatever they are, you know, it's clearly dated in terms of production value, but it kind of works. You know, it's, it's a little hokey, yeah. but also a little menacing looking. I think, I, I don't know, I think I really appreciated that element of it and Piper's acting.
0: <laughs> well, in defense of Piper's acting, which which honestly like I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't call him a good actor, but he is this is his first film and he is coming off of a career in the WWE. In fact, I would make a case, uh, you know, listeners disagree with me if you want, but uh No Holds Barred starring Hulk Hogan was actually released in 1989 and They Live uh was released in 1988. So I would make my case that this is the unofficial first WWE film. So just uh, throwing that well, out there. I think there.
1: that fight scene would, would validate your
0: statement. There. Oh, absolutely. Five and a half minutes. That fight scene goes on list after list of what's some of the greatest fight scenes in film? It's, yeah, it's you've fun. got all your Bruce Lee martial arts, everything, but you got Roddy Piper and Keith David going at it machismo style yep. for five and a half minutes. Minutes. Well, and what
1: listeners what listeners may not pick up on is, you know, we allude to this occasion, but we're recording several months out from actual broadcast, and and, and we're also on opposite ends of the country, but I will be visiting you at the end of September, and I, I made the comment that, you know, we should, as our first video podcast, you and I recreate that scene, um, you know,
0: <laughs> despite the fact
1: that I'm 6'2 and you're 5'7"? Five seven, good job. So, yeah. So l- large, large to small. I mean, I think the, I think it would work great. I mean, um, you know, I think, I think. Put on the glasses, Nathan.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Put on these glasses. <laughs> you wear these glasses. Oh, it's funny. oh man, it's uh, and and you know, I mean, it's funny because we're sitting here kind of laughing more at this, and I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even necessarily. I mean, it, I, I think it would be kind of loosely considered in the horror genre, but, um, but it's definitely not. A, a scary movie i don't think it's even attempting at the time to be a scary movie but it, it is interesting to me like this is this is the kind of movie that depending on how you go into it i think does as you've experienced largely flavor what you're going to take away from it and how you're going to how you're going to feel about it and and truly
1: you're 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 making a, a great point there and i think honestly in my defense a little bit to those who are listening thinking Nathan, you have no soul for not enjoying They Live more. I do think (laughs) the tone was jarring enough that it threw me, and if I were to watch it again with like-minded folk, I think I would have a bit more enjoyable time with it. Most of the movies up until the Carpenter series we've done, I had seen before, so kind of knew what to expect and had a little bit more, uh, you know, could wrap my head around them a little more than I could They Live, because I just didn't I had no idea what I was getting into and was very, very surprised sure. by what I got.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and, uh, you know, one of the biggest reasons I wanted to talk about it, because if we, if we were sticking more to sort of the direct horror genre, you know, we, we chose four films to talk about this month, the fog, they live the thing and Halloween, but number five and duking it out with, they live for at least five and a half minutes was, um, <laughs> a film called, <laughs> uh, was a film called In the Mouth of Madness, which is, you know, a much more direct horror film and, uh, you know, is definitely worth noting in Carpenter's Filmography. We'll mention it a little bit more uh, next week. But the reason I specifically wanted to talk about They Live is because of how direct its social commentary is. I mean, it is and it, almost to the point to where it's on the nose. Like, somebody could walk away saying, well, yeah, but that that commentary was so in my face that it it hurt my enjoyment of the film because subtlety is not a quality of *They Live* no. in the slightest. No. I mean, but I mean, I do think that some of the things it's talking about, this sort of, I mean, it, it is a trademark theme of John Carpenter's work. This whole anti-establishment, anti-conformity kind of ideal. I mean, that showed up in *Escape from New York*. That shows up in in several other of his films. That uh, it's just something that he is he seems to be passionate about as a storyteller about not creating this singular norm that everybody has to align with and everybody has to adhere to. And, uh, and that is probably never more present than it is in They Live. I mean, when he puts on those glasses, he looks at, at, at a stack of money. And I, I really keyed in on this. The stack of money, when he puts on the glasses and sees sort of what the alien subliminal message is, it says, this is your God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I, I thought that was fascinating for somebody who, you know, Carpenter does not claim to be a religious person. Um, but I thought that was very, very interesting. It's like, this is your God. All of the billboards in the, the black and white vision say, you know, obey, uh, you know, marry and reproduce, consume, you know, all, all of these kinds of pervasive subliminal messages. Um, that as the film says are intended to sort of keep you in a kind of waking sleep and it's interesting to me because we talked last week about this idea of sort of fan entitlement and and sort of fans having all the cards on the table for in terms of what kind of cultural things we want and dictating you know the success or failure of certain cultural stigmas and, and certain cultural ideas one of the things that I don't think we've talked about very much on the show until now is the influence and the power of mainstream media in general. And I'm not saying that immediately with a sort of a positive or a negative, but sure. just it's interesting to me how much influence dependent on what kind of mainstream media you consume is going to flavor your perception of social issues, your perception of people in the limelight and your perception of the culture at large is largely, I don't think it'd be too much of a stretch to say that in many ways it is kind of controlled by what you consume in mainstream media. Uh, would you, would you agree with that? Would you kick back against that idea? Hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, to, to validate some of what you're saying in terms of the film itself. Yeah. I mean, I think the movie is very on the nose and some of the things that, that echo what you're trying to get at like I think the what you were alluding to, I wrote down the the guy as the as the broadcast is being intercepted of the bearded man, you know, preaching yes. preaching to the
0: folks whose name I forget right now. Um, well, that, but, his yeah.
1: the one of the things he says is that the they keep us asleep, keep us selfish, keep us sedated, and and it is pretty interesting. <clears throat> you you bringing up the fan entitlement thing. I mean, I think that would fall into the keep us selfish, uh, sort of category there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it takes a lot of work in our society today to keep aware, you know, to, to keep awake, you know, and, and hear me that, I mean, we're, we're people talking about horror movies in this case from the eighties on a podcast distributed on one of the major media channels on the planet. So, you know, it's not lost on us, that we're participating a bit, but you know, at the same time, I don't know. I, th- I think, I think that is one of the things I was impressed with about the movie is again, it was very topical. Yeah. You know, e- even for something that's at this point almost 30 years old. In fact, I, I'm, I was a little hesitant to say this, but it's our podcast. So whatever. Um, the, there we go. the once they jump through the little portal and find themselves at the big party, <laughs> what I wrote down was, are they at the RNC? <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah oh wow um, there you go well yeah. and, and
1: interestingly one a quote i wrote down that there's some backstory to that i found very interesting um but didn't know until wa- after watching the movie but the quote the quote i wrote it might be uh, yeah i think it's you know the vagrant who finds himself in the one percent by the end because he quote unquote sold out you know Oh right, right, around. right. Yes, um, I think it's him who says this. Like, but he says we all sell out every day. Might as well be on the winning team. Yes. That yeah. like, gum. Mm-hmm. Well, the interesting backstory there is apparently when Carpenter was pitching the story at, at, to studio execs or, or someone high up the food chain, and it was a you know was pitching this idea of nonconformity and and you know aliens having taken over the financial elite. That is what the person he was pitching this to said like that was an actual quote. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't
0: think I knew that. That's really interesting. Yeah,
1: and and he just used it in the movie, but but yeah, I mean, I think to your point about media, media or or you know, the financial sector or whatever, you know, just or gosh, we we talked about it last week, the perfect example. We talked about it last week with Air and Su- Suicide Squad, but again, you can apply this to any of these major motion picture franchises that are happening right now. The inability to actually own the self-awareness of what you're involved in. You know what I mean? Like there yeah, is so yeah. there, there is an ocean of money just being filtered through the the massive entertainment machines that for someone involved, for someone who's just kind of a cog in the wheel, he's not really allowed to, to speak his mind. Now hear me, I, I'm, I'm putting yeah, thoughts yeah. in David Ayer's mouth or in his head. I don't mean to do that per se, but just saying like someone like a carpenter who reflecting on the fog said, I'm not real proud of it. I I just don't think you're going to find that much self-awareness when there's that much money associated with things and which all feeds into that sort of media element.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, I, I do agree with you that it's like one of the, one of the biggest problems that we have, you know, on any side of the political spectrum, The, the joke you made about the, the RNC, but I think that this, this next idea is indicative of all political ideologies when they're taken to their extreme is this idea of sort of, you know, well money talks and that that who has the money has the power right, and right. and whoever controls the money controls where things are taken. And if we are talking about the general trends of how things are, not how things should be, I think that's probably pretty accurate yeah. in in modern society that who who has the money gets the voice. They're the ones who who have the, um, the, sort of the platform and they're the ones who, whose opinions were sort of most saturated by. And I do think it's interesting that, uh, you know, something they live is, is kind of scratching at that, uh, we, we don't believe this is happening in real life in 2016. <laughs> like, you know, this is, this is not part of our current reality. Do we not? Oh boy. Oh. Cause we, cause we don't know. Um, but something, you know, in, in the world of they live, this massive amount of people are being controlled by these things that are completely intangible. They have no idea that they're being sort of subjected to it. They're just sort of moving along and that it's, that before they even realize it, their livestock to this other entity, this other being, this other thing. And I do think it's true, and I think it's noteworthy that if you consume any media mindlessly, if you consume anything without sort of trying to develop a discerning ear about it, I think you have the potential to fall into that category, sure. whether, whether the controlling factor is... The Democratic National Convention, the Republican National Convention, uh, Fox News, CNN, whoever, whatever. Right. If you absorb it mindlessly and do not bring a quality of discernment to it and, and sort of a testing measure to it, then you have the possibility of just, again, becoming livestock to the, to the fray and just sort of following along with the trend of where everybody else is going. And I think we see that so uh, rampantly on social media that to, to the degree that it's almost kind of sickening how many times people will simply regurgitate mindless information sure. that yep. they've heard from some unverified source. Uh, I mean, how annoyed do you get? I, I'm sorry that I'm uh, taking on a little bit of a bite to my tone here, but. By the way, read. It's, it's so frustrating to me when people will just share the link, you know, to some, to some news media outlet that is clearly clickbait. And is clearly just intended to to foster a further entrenched notion against another individual who's in the spotlight or who's in the limelight, whoever that may be. And they they just read it and share it. Well, and the
1: unfort yeah the unfortunate thing too is like we couldn't live in a more um, I don't want to use the word divided because I feel like that word has negative connotations currently, but a, a more just like bisected kind of society right now where. I mean, I experienced this in a certain circle I run in occasionally here at home, where some associations that think very differently than me, people in my life who will swear up and down a, a political thing they're stating is a fact, and I'm like, well, that's really just an opinion. Mm, yeah, you know, that that's that's your opinion. It might be informed by certain things, but it but it is an opinion, and will swear right, will right. swear up and down like, no, 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 it is in fact true. Specifically, it was. Someone was claiming, oh, you know, Obama's the worst president ever. And again, not interested in necessarily following that rabbit trail other than just saying like, well, that's your opinion. It's, it might be informed by certain things. But the point I'm trying to make is simply in a follow up text conversation with peers of this group, they, someone sent a a link to exactly to your point here. And it was basically, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dumbing this down extremely, though it's not, didn't have far, didn't have far to go. It was basically, you know, you might as well have said the headline said Obama's the worst president ever to which I Googled Obama best president ever and found a link and sent that. I was like, your point is not made like you have to have, you have Mm -hmm. to have some self-awareness about where you're coming from. And, and you make a good point about, you know, media input and stuff like that. I, I, for a long time was just avoiding news, Mm, Yeah. not because I don't want to be informed about my world. I do. I just don't trust any of the sources and had yeah, I agree. had a friend yeah. here at home who I deeply respect is an incredibly savvy kind of news consumer. He's a he's a high school uh, social studies teacher and just really smart and I went to him and I was like, "Man, I need to be informed about the world, but I don't trust anything that's out there. What do you, what do you what are you reading? What do you use as your source of news?" He recommended by the way for our listeners dot theweek.com, W-E-E-K. Anyway, so mm. you know, but I'm with you, man. Like it is it's kind of a perilous moment. As a consumer, because, and don't get me wrong, there's bias all over the map, you know, even, even the most unbiased, there's still going to be a bit of an agenda. It's just how strong is the agenda, how, for lack of a better word, that sounds strong, how malevolent is the agenda, you know, I mean, like, you just, you you got to be discerning about what you're consuming. And and what it yeah you know kind of the 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 behavior or mindset it fosters in
0: yeah I completely agree and uh, that that actually is probably a good point for me to 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 bring in one of the one of the scriptures that I thought about uh, specifically referencing this uh, now this is talking specifically about theological ideologies but in First John four one which is uh, one of my one of my go to sort of uh, landmark scriptures in terms of how I should navigate through the world. In my belief, it says, in 1 John 4, 1, it says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits Mm -hmm. to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And again, this is talking about theological ideology. But, man, I wish I could inject every fan of CNN, every fan of Fox News, every fan of any sort of pervasive media outlet... With this notion of do not believe everything, test it, see if it's see if it's true. There was a a friend we had on Facebook who it was frustrating to to both me and my wife who, you know, like they had a um, they had a position that they were sort of declaring on a political spectrum. And then after it, they said, I've, I've fact checked this. And, you know, my wife and I are sitting there having a conversation and, and, and I said, here's what they meant by fact check. I googled it, skipped over the ones that didn't uh, you know, affirm my point and then just picked the first link that did affirm my point and <laughs> there, you know, there we go. Right. And uh, you know, and and that's not to just categorically dismiss everybody cuz I mean there's a business of fact-checking who who do this kind of thing and websites that kind of trust this, but even those <laughs> I saw a friend share the other day where they said Snopes is biased and you know Snopes is uh is biased for the liberal media agenda. Like I mean it's it's everywhere it's ubiquitous this idea that that you cannot necessarily trust the information that you've been given but at the same time there are people who will say well you can't trust them you can't trust them but then the other side of the conversation is pointing the same kind of finger and saying the same kind of thing you can't trust them and both of them are sitting there saying they live they live <laughs> you know like <laughs> right. it's you know like i'm i'm being a little you know silly there but but it is pervasive. This notion of like, you're right, we can't necessarily just open our mouths wide and consume wholeheartedly. Uh, I forget what this reference is. And I want to say, uh, like, a uh, who's the guy who, gosh, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. One of the most famous screenwriters, Aaron Sorkin, mm-hmm. uh, one of the most famous screenwriters in Hollywood. Right? Well, wow, he's liberal. Uh, well, it, but here's, uh, there there is one thing that he says, and yes, he is, he is, unashamedly liberal, which, you know, that's, that doesn't speak to the quality of this statement, but he said, uh, I think he wrote this down in several of his episodes or movies. He said, uh, if you're smart, you, you know, surround, or if you're dumb, you surround yourself by smart people. If you're smart, you surround yourself by smart people who disagree with you. Mm. You know, I, th- I think whether or not you agree with sort of the political undertones of Sorkin or anybody else who, who would sort of be in the public eye, I think there's a lot of wisdom in this idea of you need to challenge your own assumptions. Sure. You need to yep. challenge yep. your, your own idea and especially challenge the glut and onslaught of things that you're, that you're hearing on a regular basis from your preferred media sources. Like challenge them. Listen to the opposing side. Give everyone their voice and their opportunity to try to speak their mind. You know, again, it's talking a little bit deeper into sort of theology, but maybe as a, with an eye towards winding us down. Another verse of scripture that I love that I thought about in relation to this topic is, is Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And of course, this is again thinking theologically. But, uh, I think it's interesting because I think it's, it's prevalent in the church it's prevalent in the media, it's prevalent in politics, nobody likes the word conform. Nobody likes it. And everybody thinks that they're the ones who are being anti-conformity. Everybody thinks that, you know, we're the ones who are for the individual. We're the ones who are for independent thought. But I can't think of a single sort of established institution that doesn't also at the same time kind of encourage you to toe the line and sure, sort of sure. get in lockstep with, with their uh, platform ideology. And again, I, I just can't think of one. I can't think of one that genuinely encourages individual thought. I can think of many that say they do, but then encourage subliminally or subversively this idea of just simply conforming along with the same ideas that they have. So in that regard I think they live is oddly prophetic (laughs) in its you know, in its structures. However satirical and silly we may think the core narrative or plot is, and however outrageous we may think uh Rowdy Roddy Piper's acting is, I think they live has some interesting things to say about challenging the the norm, the social norm. Uh, yeah. That uh, that that we see in the world around us. Do you have any sort of follow up or possibly final thoughts on on that general idea?
1: No, I mean, I think I just think there's such great wisdom. You know, I've, I've got a buddy on Facebook who who shout out Jehu um, who will. On the one hand, you could say he loves to kick a hornet's nest. On the other hand, it's I mean, the man just loves to ask the questions, ask the hard questions, and challenge folks, and you know, not out of a divisive spirit, but out of a, you've got to think more about not the source of your input per se, though, perhaps that, um, but about what the source of your input is telling you, you know? And, right, and I think, right. I think too often to end on a potentially heretical note to too often, we don't depend enough on ourselves. Mm. You know, I, I say heretical just cause, you know, a lot of folk may think, oh, well, lean not on your own understanding, which I, I get it. I, I'm not. Yeah. Challenging yeah. that sort of idea. I'm simply saying the Lord has gifted you with a brain and a spirit and a and a, a heart. And I think too often we, we adopt the sensibilities of our inputs over examining what those inputs are doing to us in our interior yes. life. I think that's a very precarious place to find ourselves. And yet too many of us don't recognize that we're there.
0: No, I, I, I definitely agree with that. I definitely agree with that. And uh, I think that's probably a good place for us to to sort of wrap up. So this is this is a uh, sort of a, a, a hot-blooded conversation. So as as we say on every episode, the fear of God may be the beginning of wisdom, but it's not the end of the conversation. And I know that this topic is something that a lot of people have very passionate, very strong opinions about. So we, we want to hear from you. We want to hear your thoughts uh, not only about the film they live and how amazing it is and how wonderful it is, but also uh, your feelings on John. Carver. And maybe, Reed, we should we should do our first our, our first contest. If anyone wants to film their own version of the fight scene and submit it to us, we'll have, we'll happily broadcast it <laughs> for you. Absolutely, you you heard it here first. If you want to devote the time to making a five and a half minute recreation of the fight scene from They Live, uh, we will find a way to get it out there. We will we will figure something <laughs> out. Um so. You can contact us in a number of ways. You can follow us on Twitter. Uh, What's our Twitter handle, Nathan? Uh, At The Fear of God. At The Fear of God. You can also like us on Facebook. There's a link to that from our Twitter. Um, You can email us, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, so you can email us. You can uh, follow us on Twitter. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter at Reed Lackey. Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter? Uh, the Nathan Rouse. And uh, we would love very, very much to continue this conversation. I know that uh, sometimes we... We touch on some things that people have very passionate opinions about. We want to keep the conversation going. Please reach out to us by, uh, these, <laughs> please fall in line and, uh, <laughs> reach out to us. Obey. Obey. Uh, <laughs> Obey. Uh, by, uh, you know, by social media and, uh, and, uh, you know, especially if you're all out of bubble gum because, uh, <laughs> that is, that is, uh, that is the thing we encourage here. So, um. Speaking of, speaking of the thing that is, uh, what we are watching next week, right? Oh yes, yes. So uh so a dramatic departure in tone. Next week we are going to be doing uh, again uh, another sort of broad stroke uh, view of Carpenter's next decade and then diving deeper into what I consider to be a horror masterpiece, um John Carpenter's The Thing. So uh we will uh, look forward to having that conversation with you next week. Nathan, thank you so much for having this conversation with me and for watching They Live. <laughs> yep, yep. You're welcome. <laughs> and, uh, and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.
1: The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for links to our social media and episode archive, essays, merchandise, and more. If you love what we do, consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash thefearofgodpodcast where you will unlock exclusive bonus episodes, extended standard episodes, online events, and so much more. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of TracerMetula.com for our artwork. Our assortment of talented musicians, Andrew Nelson, the Island Family, and Jackson Harper for our varied show tunes. And to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music. Special thank you also to Tyler Smith at MoreThanOneLesson.com. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, and if you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thank you for listening,
0: and we'll see you next week.